IGC. First, I want to just say thank you for your faithfulness to me and the ministry to college students. Um, your church has been partnering with me over the last a uh, little bit over a year or so, and we are just so encouraged that um, IGC, has n- you've not neglected your call to invest in ministries outside your church, uh, ministries like RUF, so that the gospel can go out into a world in need. And so I'm just so thankful for you all this morning. Well, this morning we get to consider uh, the Bible's vision of heaven. And, uh, you know, there was a time in my life where heaven to me was like a, an awesome afterthought. I was glad that it was there, but I saw little relevance and application of it to my life. Um, I grew up hearing the phrase, you know, you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you become no earthly good. And the Bible challenges us to consider that if heaven has no practical impact in our lives, then we must also conclude that hopelessness has no practical impact on our lives. And there are so many examples where hopelessness leads people down a variety of destructive paths either for themselves or to others. And so our passage this morning in Isaiah, tell, Isaiah 25 tells us that the hope of heaven is part of the very real plan of God, is concrete in its promises and worth looking forward to. And so would you turn now to Isaiah 25? It's in your bulletin or in your Bible. Um, and let's hear the reading of God's word. This is Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made a city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hand, spreads out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you that you do not leave us here without hope, without knowing that you have something for us to wait for, that in this life, your hope of heaven is something that you have given to us in Old and New Testament. You've given it to us to secure us, 
to help us to persevere, to help us look to Jesus, to walk with him and be guided by him all the way to the end of our lives, the lives in this world and into the next. Father God, would you guide us now? Would you be here with us, be close to us, and help us to see what you have in store for us and may it animate our lives all the days that we walk here on this earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My first memory as an ordained minister uh, was the very day after my ordination. I'd become a pastor, and I remember getting the call at 6 a.m. My throat was still scratchy from just waking up, and on the other side of the line was a young woman in her 20s uh, from our church, and she had been babysitting her newborn niece. And her sister and brother-in-law were enjoying a much-needed night off, a date night. Um, And during that date night, the baby died. And I received the the tear-filled call after the panic of the night, the trip to the hospital, and finally the pronouncement of the baby's death. And, you know, I had never heard of sudden infant death syndrome until this phone call. Now, this young lady didn't have the luxury to think about the horrors of death later. It came, and she called because she needed to hear something of God's comfort something hopeful. Now, I had been a pastor, as I told you, for five minutes. I didn't have the words to to comfort her, and so my instinct was to pray. And the only comforting prayer that came to mind came from this morning's passage and its corresponding text in Revelation 21. My prayer acknowledged that God knew about our tears, that he had a sure plan to wipe them away and to make sure death would never threaten his children again. As I read Isaiah 25, I read how much God hates the death that has threatened his precious creation. And he has something to say in the face of death so that you and I can have genuine hope. And so we'll see this morning that hope in heaven is firstly part of God's plan, secondly is concrete in his promises, and thirdly is to be enjoyed. Now before I get too far, I want to say that when I say heaven, what I mean is what most of us think of of when we hear heaven. Uh, sort of the final state of our salvation and eternity, what the Bible technically calls the new heavens and the new earth. You've heard about, you'd heard Michael preach about resurrection, that final state of our, our lives with God forever. That's, when I say heaven, that's what I mean. And the first thing I want us to notice is that in verse one, it tells us that we can hope for heaven because it's part of God's plan and he is totally in control of that plan and he will see it to completion. Take a look. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Now, Isaiah references God's faithfulness in the past so that when he transitions to the future in verse 6, we can know that the same God who kept his promises in the past will keep his promises for the future. But I want us to slow down and marvel at the fact that God has a plan in the first place. The fact that God has a plan means that life is progressing. It tells us that life and time are linear. Life is not sort of a stagnant, meaningless drift, nor is it an endless, repeating cycle. Heaven tells us that we're not just moving forward, but we're moving forward toward a good destination. The college campus where I minister is full of people who know what it means to plan. The nature of college Uh, is that it's temporary and it's necessary that people plan for the future. My favorite plan of a student who graduated was uh, his plan for his future was to squirrel away enough money 
during his uh, early 20s and 30s, so that by the time he was 40, he could retire early. And when I looked at his salary, I was like, I don't know how you're going to do this. These numbers don't make sense. And he said, well, Brian, my plan is to live at home with my parents and have them pay for everything so that I can complete this plan. And I said, okay, that's fine. Um, on, a, on a different side of things, I, I had a Swedish man. He was a Swedish uh, immigrant to America, and he was at my former church. And I asked him, he just had a baby boy, and I said, Daniel, what is your dream for your son? And he said, Brian, let me tell you. My plan for my son is that he would be a mid-level programmer. And I thought that that was just so anti-American, but what happened was he got thrust into management, and he all he wanted to do was program, and so he was like, this is horrible, I hate people. Um, and so he's like, for my son, mid-level programming. Whether you have plans for greatness, like retire early at 40, or f- for stability, like my Swedish friend, whatever you, like however you think about it, planning motivates everything that we do. I've never heard anyone say, when I graduate college, I expect nothing to happen. I'm not going to get a job. Absolutely nothing is going to happen. That's ridiculous, right? Uh, But you might be surprised that that is the number one thing I hear young people say when they think about what's going to happen when you die. The number one answer is not, uh, well, if I'm a really good person, I'll go to heaven. That, That maybe a few decades ago was the answer. Now it is, when I die, everything is just going to stop. I don't care about heaven. Um, If heaven doesn't exist, I'm not going to hell. The number one thing I look forward to in my life is that my life will cease, everything will end, and and that's what I look forward to. There's a well-known pastor in our denomination who helpfully observes that the thing keeping people going in a world without a plan for a better future after death is optimism. You know what that is, right? It's looking at the glass half full rather than half empty. And my own natural disposition is to be optimistic. I think that's a little bit my personality, but it's also an outflow of my Christian faith. And I have found that it's usually a good thing. People like being around an optimistic person. They tend to be a little bit happier. Am I right? Uh, But optimistic people can also be really annoying. Um, When someone is going through real pain, my optimistic comments, looking at the brighter side of things, um, are really tone deaf and insensitive. Optimism has nothing to say in the face of real pain, life-threatening sickness, and especially death. I was confiding in a friend about a difficult circumstance that I was going through with a close family member who shunned me for reasons I'm not going to go into here, but my friend noticed that I began going into optimism mode. I started whitewashing the situation in my mind, trying to make a painful situation seem not that bad. I began making excuses for that family member, saying, well they had a really hard upbringing themselves or, you know, maybe they weren't loved when they were younger. And my friend listened patiently and then he said, you know, Brian, optimism can often be a cover for a lack of faith or unbelief. And I had never heard that before. He was saying that instead of looking at God and trusting in his promises uh, through a genuinely painful and hurtful situation, I was trying to essentially pretend that it wasn't so bad or painful My friend wasn't scolding me for a lack of faith. He wanted me to see that God can do better than letting us lie to ourselves about the reality of pain and suffering. And in order for the hope of heaven to be greater than mere optimism, it needs to be concrete. And that's exactly what we have in God's promise of heaven. God's future promises are not some nebulous, it'll just get better. 
God gives us concrete and specific promises. That's our second point. God promises concretely to end suffering, to wipe away every tear, to swallow up death forever. But notice that book ending, this very hopeful picture, is all this judgment. Take a look at verse 2. For we have made, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. So the image of God's judgment in Isaiah is drowning his enemies in a latrine or death by drowning in poop. Uh, That is my top three worst ways to die. Um, And God's judgment is meant to be terrifying. And Isaiah wants us to see that when God talks about things like heaven, hope for the future, it comes right alongside his judgment or his justice. That is not just an Old Testament thing. It is also a New Testament thing. And I realize that that is uncomfortable. And it's even more uncomfortable that the way that God's judgment is talked about is actually something that we, as God's people, are supposed to long for and wait for patiently. What's going on here? God's judgment is always going to be a problem for us when we think about it as an isolated abstraction because it makes God seem like a God who flies off the handle and has no love for his creation. But when we remember how God actually displays his judgment in the lives of real people in the Bible, we see that when we think about God's judgment, judgment or his justice, it's, it's contextually put in a frame of a God who rescues. Our passage does not say that God's judgment comes against foreigners, uh, but it comes against ruthless foreigners. Who might that be in Israel's history? Well, we first might think of Egypt, who enslaved the Israelites for 400 years and then oppressed them so hard that God intervened supernaturally to free them from their slave masters in Egypt. And so we actually need to hope in God's concrete wrath and judgment. Otherwise, he won't be who he is, as he says who he is in verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. In Isaiah's present context, when he said this, Israel was, was once again subjugated by a brutal, the brutal and ruthless Babylonians. Now, when we look back through archaeology, we actually have uh, way more information about a, um, the, ruthless, uh, the ruthlessness of another type of people, the ancient Assyrians, who were conquered by the Babylonians. But the image of force necessary to take over the Assyrians is what we should think about when we think about the Babylonians. So uh, we don't have a ton of records of the ruthlessness of the Babylonians, but we do of the people they took over, the Assyrians. The Assyrians would string their prisoners up naked by fish hooks in the cheek. They would pile up the heads of their enemies into this huge mound outside the walls of the people they were about to conquer to intimidate them. They would impale people alive on spikes for disobedience. The Assyrians were people who were bent on conquest and takeover. And the Babylonians conquered these people. And they didn't do it through diplomacy. They did it with war. Now, what does all this mean for us? As Isaiah talks about foreign and ruthless enemies, he is showing us that death is to be thought of as our great enemy. 
The enemy is coming, and he will defeat us unless God steps in. Death is not a welcome friend like we often see on TV and movies. I remember growing up as a young child watching The Lion King. Uh, And you remember there's this great speech that Mufasa gives his young son, Simba. He says, Simba, you know that the lions eat the antelope, but then we die and we become the grass and the antelope eat the grass. So it's all part of the circle of life. And when that story is being told, you know, there's that soothing soothing music, umama, umama, mama. Umama, umama, mama, the circle of love, right? Anyways, that was bad. But um, just because, like, I remember as a young child hearing that and hearing that music and thinking, wow, maybe that is how life is. But I want you to think about a more realistic picture, uh, leaving the world of TV and movies to think about what this might actually sound like. There was once a seven-year-old boy whose three-year-old cousin had died, and he asked his mother where his cousin was now. And since she didn't believe in heaven or afterlife, she, didn't, she couldn't in good conscience begin to talk about heaven. So she relied on what she had learned. And she said, well, your cousin has gone back to the earth where we all came from. So when we see the flowers next spring, you can know that it's your cousin's life fertilizing those flowers. You know what the seven-year-old boy did, right? He screamed hysterically, ran under a table and said, I don't want him to become fertilizer. And I think that that seven-year-old boy is more honest about the reality of death than a lot of us are as we go through our lives. Death was never the way it was meant to be, and God gives us a picture of death through the lived experience of Israel being threatened by real nations with formidable and intimidating armies. These armies were a tangible picture of death, and it is the army, the enemy that threatens, and death is the enemy that threatens every human being in this world. Old Testament Israel did not have the luxury to ignore their enemies. And you and I do not have the luxury to ignore the reality of death. It is coming, and we need someone to deliver us. Now, there's one more um, contextual thing that's really important in Isaiah. The reason that Israel needed to be rescued is because they had actually abandoned their relationship with God. Uh, They had it turned away from God They had become ruthless themselves, and God responded by rejecting them from the land. And so what we see here is that God's judgment is not partial or prejudiced for a certain type of people. Our passage says that the veil of death is over all people in the world. In other words, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The same judgment that was directed towards Israel's enemies was directed towards Israel when they abandoned and turned their backs on God and had become ruthless themselves. So there are enemies who are ruthless without, but we also have to pay attention that there are enemies within who are ruthless. And so if this is the case, how can we be safe and how can we find peace? And the answer is that Jesus would have to come and defeat death. And he did that on the cross when he gave his own perfect life to satisfy the wrath of God against his enemies. Our passage says that death will be swallowed up forever. And the only way that would happen, according to God's plan, is that death would have to swallow Jesus first. And yet it could not have victory over Jesus. As you've heard in uh, the last few weeks, he rose from the dead to proclaim real hope for anyone who wishes to be reconciled to God. I like how one commentator put it, the darkness of death swallowed Jesus. He entered it, but then he blew a hole out the back of it. It had no right to him because he was innocent. 
Now it has no ultimate right over us who put their faith in him. And so how can we be sure that death really has, will be defeated or that death has been defeated by Jesus? God uses the image of a feast to assure us. Our, my last point is that heaven is some, the hope of heaven is something to be enjoyed, an enjoyable experience to look forward to. The symbol and image you have that death will actually be defeated once and for all is this feast that God will throw. In the ancient Near East, the way that you would signal victory is with a feast. You can't really feast and celebrate if your enemies have been wounded and are just regrouping. They have to be gone for good. And then you can really enjoy the feast. And God uses one of my favorite images in the Bible. God is going to prepare a feast of rich food full of marrow. That tells me that heaven is going to be like a bowl of ramen noodles. I don't know a single person who has not had a cup of noodles or a pack of the square freeze-dried block of ramen. Uh, the ramen we grew up with was that, had that MSG mystery seasoning pack and that freeze-dried block, uh, and ramen was cheap, less than a dollar. Many college students testify that they made it through college eating ramen at 12 a.m. Uh, this type of ramen is not like heaven. But about seven-ish years ago, real Japanese ramen began to make its way to the States, Uh, Nicole and I got to travel to Manhattan where we had our very first bowl. Now, real ramen is wheat noodles cooked in a bone marrow broth. It's cloudy and and milky, but not greasy, which is amazing because if uh, if you're a bio major, uh, bone marrow is basically fat. it's, It's a block of fat. That's basically what it is. And when you have noodles cooked in this broth made from bone marrows, as soon as you eat it, you begin to say things like to yourself like, Whatever I have been eating before is not ramen. This is ramen. In heaven, we will look back on this thing that we called life, and we will not say that it was a waste. Uh, Just like cheap ramen noodles had a purpose, but when you taste the real thing, it's like you can never go back. Everything about our lives in God's kingdom will be so much more full and rich and satisfying. As a younger man, I thought, the way that I thought about, I thought about heaven this way, you know, heaven's great, but I got a lot of things that I want to do here on earth. I have a lot of plans. I want to see a lot of things. I do not want that to come too soon. And I want you to think about that, like saying that uh, I want to spend my time getting my fill of the, uh, of the cheapest or the worst type of life uh, when the real thing is waiting for you. The image of food dripping with marrow is given to us because food like that will leave you satisfied with the best that God has to offer. And if you want to know what, what it is to long for the hope of heaven or to hope in heaven, you only need to speak to those who are most afflicted here on earth. I once met a young man at a youth camp, um, and uh, he, he would lead worship uh, and but during the meal times, he had to have these packs of food, and he had to, he couldn't eat any of the camp food. He had to bring his own um, sort of special diet uh, food for his dietary needs. And what happened was this young man would, had been afflicted with all kinds of allergies, and you can imagine what his life was. That going to a restaurant, he couldn't have enjoy anything that was before him, and this was before you could have gluten-free, nut-free, soy-free, like all these sort of caveats and have the food taste good. He lived a life eating some of the most bland food um, that there was because he was allergic to so many things. And when he applied the hope of heaven to his life, that's what he thought about. 
He thought about one day I'll get to eat food without having to think about everything that I'm eating and knowing that my body is going to reject uh, this, very, this very thing that's meant to be enjoyed. Still more severe, I had a girl in my youth group who had a brain tumor, and when that brain tumor was removed, it messed with her GI tract so that she couldn't eat. Um, and so when they finally did figure out a way to, to bypass um, some of her gastrointestinal uh, organs with bags of liquid food, she had to dispose of that waste, and there was problems on that end too. And so she had to, to release her waste through a small tube in her stomach. And sometimes, imagine yourself a teenage girl, that tube would malfunction. And she would run to the bathroom and call her mom and say, please come help me, it's all over the place. When she thought, lived her life uh, through constant uh, seeing the, uh, the weakness of her own body, when she thought about heaven, she thought about the day that finally I'm going to be able to live in this body that won't reject everything that is so good. I can finally live life without the headaches and the pain. Listening to these individuals helps me to think about and apply heaven to my life, to, to realize that the things that this life has to offer is not all that there is. Now, you might be thinking about yourself that I'm not afflicted with um, any type of disease or illness yet. Um, is there any, anything for me is, to, as I think about the hope of heaven? You bet. Those of us who don't have diseases or illness, you know what it's like to have sin ruin your relationships. I want you to think for a moment about the most important relationship of your life. It could be um, your parents. It could be your children or a spouse or just a great friend. Think about having these relationships and knowing that at one time or another that these relationships have been impacted deeply by sin. All you want to do in your relationship is to be loved by someone and you know what it's like when someone doesn't love you the way that you're supposed to love, how disappointing that is, especially if there's someone important in your life. And conversely, you want to know what it is to do your best to love this person that you want to have a good relationship with, and yet your own love is full of all kinds of selfishness, all kinds of ways that it just doesn't add up for the other person. Jonathan Edwards gives us this example of what our love is like in this world. And he's a Puritan, so sometimes he can be kind of a Debbie Downer. But uh, his view of our love in this world is like a clogged pipe. Uh, yes, some water gets through the pipe, but that water is dirty sewage water. And he says that in heaven, I want you to imagine that that pipe is finally cleared and your love is allowed to flow free, freely and unhindered, both towards God and towards each other. That is the vision of heaven that Jonathan Edwards gives us and the Bible gives us. And as we think about how wondrous it would be to finally love God with a pure heart and finally love others with a pure heart because of all that God has done for us, that is why Isaiah says that we will have to celebrate with what he calls aged wine while refined. God is going to accomplish this, his, his plan. It is sure and it will come to pass. Now, the last stanzas of Isaiah speak of Moab, a symbol of Israel's enemies being stripped of their power insecurity. And that tells us, um, it would be really awesome, like the way that I think about stories, for it to end on the happy note, but it ends on this judgment note. And that tells us that death doesn't get the final word. God gets the final word. And I needed to know that, especially this year in 2019. In 2019, by March, the very third month of the year, three people in my life had died 
two suddenly and one through a year-long bout with cancer. The first person who died was my cousin. My cousin was a non-Christian. Um, if you don't know, I grew up in uh, a Chinese, traditional Chinese household. I used to worship my dead ancestors. And so my cousin had a traditional um, Chinese wedding. And when I walked into, sorry, funeral, um, had a traditional Chinese funeral. And when I walked into that funeral, I did not see hope. Everything about that funeral had wailing and tears. And if there wasn't wailing and tears, there was the deadening silence of no hopeful words. And it impressed upon me that if God had not called me out from my sin to repent and turn to him, uh, to his grace and believe in him by faith, that this funeral would have been my funeral. And that was, this funeral was deeply contrasted by the other two funerals I went to. The first was of a lay leader in my church. He helped out with youth group. And God used him to show me what it was to genuinely follow God and to love him. Um, and uh, he is also the one that God used to maybe suggest that, Brian, you might be called to be a pastor. And at his funeral, uh, were there tears? You bet there were. There are plenty of tears. But it wasn't the same because this man's funeral was packed with people who had all these things to say about what Craig had done in their lives. And so in a weird way, at Craig's death, there was more light uh, in a flash because all these people were recounting the ways that God had used Craig to bless their lives, especially during their time in youth group. The second funeral was just like it. It was of a church planter in San Jose. He had He had uprooted his life and moved to the Bay Area, sacrificed so much, and as soon as he got here, terminal cancer. And he he fought it for a year. And at his funeral, the same thing. It was almost like the whole of his life was culminating in this moment so that the people at his funeral could think about the Jesus that this man spent his life proclaiming to other people, could give him thanks and recount all the ways that God had been faithful in this man's life. I'm indebted to this second man as well because he loved the Bay Area so much that when he was called the church plant, he demanded that alongside my church plant there be a ministry to the college students at San Jose State. And so to both Craig and to Jameson, the church planner, I am indebted. Uh, And as I think about these men who spent all their lives telling people about the hope of heaven and hearing all the people recount how awesome and how uh, gracious and loving their lives were on this earth. They weren't perfect, but God had used them to bless others. I thought about the adage, you know, you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Certainly in the lives of these two men, these men thought about heaven often, and it caused so much good to be done through them in the world that they, in the lives that they lived And so I want to close today standing on these two men's shoulders and saying that to everyone who wants a true hope for the future, if you really want to hope in a world without sin and death threatening you, God says, come, trust in my son, trust in his death for forgiveness and his resurrection for eternal life, and he will lead you to the heaven that your soul not only needs, but it wants dearly. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you do not let us be lulled to sleep by thinking that death is just something that we should just 
passively resign ourselves to. But you tell us the horrors of death and you tell us, trust in my son. He is the champion. He is the one who has the victory over death and he will deliver you. He will cause the veil over all people to be taken away and you will know my goodness and my love. Father God, help us to hope in heaven when we face the various trials in this life, the various hard things, um, and the very uh, presence of people dying in this life. Help us to know that this is not all that there is. Help us to pursue Jesus and help us to have lives um, that as we hope in heaven are characterized by the love of Christ um, that you have given to us and help us to share that in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.